Hey there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I have two students with me again for more, uh, more enjoyment, more pleasure, more fun, mm -hmm. more anguish. Eric, you ready for this? Oh yeah. So um, let me briefly introduce the topic. Eric uh, put together a, had the idea for a podcast for looking at neuropathology and, and the correlates with schizophrenia. I think I really liked that topic and I dumped somewhere in the neighborhood of 700 articles in a folder that we started reading together. Eric uh, did much better than I did getting through all those articles and uh, we, we ended up breaking this into two podcasts, one that was shorter uh, that talked about the psychological autopsy. This is uh, a sister podcast to that so to speak, where we're going to talk about the graveyard of neuropathology. Yeah. Uh, so, Eric, you introduced yourself at the last podcast. Let's have you introduce yourself again. Uh, hello, my name is Eric. I'm a third-year medical student. <laughs> and going into pathology. Oh, yeah, yeah. And a Rocky Vista student as well. Okay. Yeah. RVU. Uh, Camille? Uh, my name is Camille. I'm a third-year medical student as well um, from Rocky Vista University. And perhaps... By four o'clock this afternoon, we will have a podcast done with you. I'm gonna get lucky. <laughs> you are definitely going to get lucky that way. So, um, with this topic, I think Camille, I ask you to look for any uh, genes that are showing up on the shelf exam associated with schizophrenia. There are none, is my understanding. There are genes that show up with frontotemporal dementias primarily. What are the genes that we need to be aware of or the proteins that we need to be aware of for uh, frontotemporal dementia? Um, um, a very common one that everyone knows is the CDP43, uh -huh. uh, which is transactive response DNA binding protein. Um, but in the DSM, there are multiple other ones like the MAPT, um, the chromatin modifying protein 2B, but those are not something that come up across in all the board prep um, questions I've, I've come across. So TDP, TDP is an important one. So TDP43, this is a uh, a protein test, right? TDP43, yes. yes. or is it a gene test? That I'm not quite sure, actually. But I think, that I think it's, it's a, a gene test. So I think, you can, I think you can do it with uh, serum or even scrapings. I oh. think it's a gene test. Um, this is interesting because this is a podcast we had not recently, and we looked at the function of um, MAPT and, and TDP43. We looked at how those affect neurons and what we know about those. And it feels like we're a lot further along in understanding those pathways than we are in understanding some of the pathways with schizophrenia. So today we're gonna talk a little bit about what we do and don't know about schizophrenia. Yeah, well it's mostly uh, don't know at this point. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, well, it's interesting too. Maybe we start off with this comment. Neuropathology is the graveyard. No, schizophrenia is the graveyard of neuropathology mm -hmm. or neuropathologists. Yeah. Tell me where that statement came from. So if, look, if you look at the literature of this kind of research, I think about 100 years ago, back when I guess technology was more limited, the primary method of doing autopsies on the subject was just gross brain examinations where they open up the brain and see if there's any gross anatomical differences that they found between patients with schizophrenia and other uh, mental health issues or neurocognitive issues. And what they found that was there, there wasn't really any definitive markers that could differentiate these patients with schizophrenia. And uh, there was two articles that we looked at, uh, both looked at the postmortem studies throughout history of these kinds of things. And 
while they did note there were some slight differences in you know some neurotransmitters, maybe some gliosis, maybe some increases in ventricle size, most of the articles pre maybe like this century made the conclusion that there are no definitive markers for schizophrenia when you look at gross brain autopsies. I think there was one study which um, was done in the 1990s, which took about 100 patients with schizophrenia and then 200 controls, and then they examined their brains. And some of the findings that they found was that um, there was really no change in the gross anatomy of patients with schizophrenia. The brain masses weren't really different. Um, there were no changes in gliosis, which are signs of inflammation that you would traditionally assume that patients with schizophrenia would have. Um, Likewise, uh, there was no density in like the senile plaques, which are associated with things with like Alzheimer's. Um, so, when these researchers and doctors tried to examine these brains, they kind of threw up their hands and said, "Hey, we've been trying for many years, and our research hasn't been showing us any definitive signs. Or for students, there's no buzzword kind <laughs> of like you know anatomical markers that we can definitively point as schizophrenia." And Due to the techno technological limitations at this time, they kind of looked at what would need to be done in order to kind of make a definitive diagnosis. And like you have this patient population of schizophrenia, which is like, you know, 1% of the population. And then a lot of the article was talking about how there's so many confounding variables, which I think we'll talk about uh, later in the podcast, where like you need to find patients with schizophrenia, which is like 1%, and then you separate patients with schizophrenia with other comorbid conditions, Alzheimer's, vascular dementia, right? And then you need to further separate down those patients into those who haven't taken any medications because those affect the brain. And then there's this stigma against doing autopsies, right? So you need to take a percentage of a percentage of a percentage of a very specific population just to do research on. And the research that they're doing is not showing significant results. So that kind of criteria kind of basically coined this term of graveyard of pathology because it's so difficult to get studies done and the studies that that are being performed really aren't showing the results that they want. I think for me, I was struck by, um, it, it's always been interesting to me. I had a, a, a psychiatrist I, I respect a great deal, Peter Wyden, Dr. Wyden, who was involved in the Katie trials, if I remember correctly. He was at a, in a conversation I happened to be in at one point, he asked, what's, what's the lesion with schizophrenia? Mm -hmm. And we're like, uh, 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 right? and this is 2009, 2010. And I think probably lesions were showing up at that point, but we certainly didn't have those. And to your point, that gross anatomy was never going to show those lesions, right? Mm -hmm. Even um, I think some of the information you have from the first article, the... Uh, was the Harrison article, which I think is a, a really interesting yeah. review, right? It talks about smaller brain volumes. That's three percent mm -hmm. smaller brain volumes, but to to be able to call schizophrenia as a diagnosis based on a three percent volume, mm -hmm. uh, I think is I don't think that helps you, right? Yeah, it, it's it not more helpful than the person is demonstrating odd behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. So, so I think. Um, or smaller cortical volumes, smaller gray matter, all of these I've seen before as things that are associated with schizophrenia, but they haven't been meaningful and, and they they don't give us a way to tie a genetic, uh, a gene, an allele, yeah. to a process. And I think that's the thing that I thought was really fascinating is we're, when we talk about neuropathology, everything that has been done 
really moved away from, I think, slices of the brain. Mm -hmm. M maybe there are some slices with staining, but I think mostly the stuff I was looking at seemed to be homogenous, right? You, yeah. you get a, a section of the brain, and if you like throw the whole brain together, you don't get any signal. But if you start maybe going to smaller and smaller sections of the brain, then maybe you can get signals on what protein is present or not. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that as well, I think. Yeah. And one of the things that these, are, these first two articles talked about was this limitation that they had at the time. I think one of the quotes I wrote down was that um, the Harrison article says, it's not yet possible to measure neuronal size, synaptic terminals, neural gene expression in any way. And, you know, we can do that today. Yeah, so, I was amazed yeah. by that too, by the Imagine these, these doctors back in the day, they're like, they knew what they had to do, which was examine these brains at a microscopic level, but, you know, they were limited with the technology of their time, which is kind of why they thought, they coined this phrase, graveyard, because what they had at their disposal, there's nothing they could do. Right. right? And I do, and I guess I better back up a little bit, because I, I, I'm still not sure that the gross pathology is a lot more usable but there were a couple of articles where people counted the number of neurons and the size of those neurons, right? Yeah. yeah. And I thought that, that blew me away. Mm -hmm. I was, I was uh, floored by that. Mm -hmm. I, I think, even though I think we were going to talk about maybe an article that you wanted to talk about, I want to go to Kleinman first. So Kleinman makes the argument, uh, I want to say maybe 15 years ago, he mm -hmm. makes the argument, we need to... We need to be a part, and I, I think he's speaking as a neuropathologist, we need to be a part of the discussion of how a gene is involved in the process of schizophrenia, mm -hmm. right? He makes the case that neuropathologists have the most proximal view of anybody, where we've seen um, imaging, right, like functional imaging, uh, tensor imaging, I, I don't know that, that I saw anything about that. I assume that's being used or will, will develop at some point. Mm -hmm. These different imagings have been used and tried to correlate, or, or it's been, attempts are made to correlate that imaging with a certain gene, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think he mentioned something else. And he said, we, we have the ability to look at the transcriptome. Now, I, th I think I'm interpreting that the correct way, and I think that's the way it would be said now. Mm -hmm. We have the ability to look at the transcriptome that nobody else has because that's our field. Mm -hmm. And and I think that sets the stage for the articles that we looked at. Most of those, I think, looked at the transcriptome. Yeah. So in the context of the graveyard of neuropathology, gross anatomy, let's now shift gears mostly but not completely to some articles that you really liked in this mess of articles mm -hmm. and we'll, we'll talk about some of the things we saw mm -hmm. and maybe give a, an example or two of what you really liked like your favorite article what you learned from it why it was your favorite and then if it's okay after you've uh, done as many of those as you want mm -hmm. kick it back to me and I'll talk about one of the articles I really liked sure so a lot of the articles that I was interested in related to dopamine and dopamine, re dopamine receptors, because, you know, in medical school, when we talk about schizophrenia and related diseases, it's all about dopamine, dopamine, dopamine regulation. We learn about the different pathways that affect the regulation of dopamine. So it was interesting to see a lot of these articles talk about the transcription of dopamine, uh, dopamine itself, the dopamine receptors, and dopamine enzymes, and how they differentiate between patients with schizophrenia and normal patients. So one of the articles I found particularly interesting was that 
different dopamine receptors exist. Um, maybe you're familiar with that. We have D1, D2, all the way to D4. Maybe even D... Right? D is there more? Yeah. No, is there just D4? I well, think. this article talked about D1 through D4, but the point of the article was that they found inconsistencies in the data in relation to dopamine, where traditionally we might say, like, oh, it's because of dopamine regulation. The article suggests, hey, we found differences in the clustering of dopamine receptors, right? So mm -hmm. instead of there being less dopamine receptors or more, perhaps they're, I think they, they described it as being a monomer versus an oligomer, right? And one well, something interesting I found was that if a group of receptors aren't as clustered, they might still affect the functioning of dopamine, but not be decreased in number, right? Because traditionally we say, oh, if there's less dopamine receptors, there's less ability of dopamine to be effective. But that can be just as true if these, re if these receptors aren't as clustered together. And so you could have mm -hmm. functional equivalents that are morphologically different. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm gonna kind of jump in here just very quickly because I think this was one of the takeaways that I had from reading the articles, mm -hmm. and that is that as researchers have gone to smaller and smaller units for analysis, mm -hmm. they had clear signals between patients with schizophrenia and patients without. Mm -hmm. They were able to see the differences in either the number of receptors or the type of receptor mm -hmm. or the morphology of, maybe less the morphology on gross anatomy, but more the the the, the proteins, mm -hmm. right, and and how they were expressed. So mm -hmm. I I think that was a key point of what I learned. Yeah, and it's really interesting because like as we're trying to find these signs for schizophrenia, you wonder like who's who's correct here? You know, is it the, the, our medical schools that are teaching us about it was about dopamine, dopamine regulation? Is it these articles talking about clustering of dopamine receptors, or these other articles that I found talking about you know dopamine enzymes, you know the transcriptomes, the mRNA, where there are several articles that said hey schizophrenia patients have an increase in this enzyme that creates dopamine receptors, but other articles show that there's, it's actually decreased, right? And others, there's some to talk about, you know, uh, related receptors such as um, D2, dopamine receptor D2, uh, monoamino oxidase transcriptors, um, VMAT, right? Mm -hmm. All these enzymes are fluctuating in patients with schizophrenia, and they're not really sure which one is the most correlated, right? Some articles show an yeah. increase, others show a decrease. There's this clustering, so it's really like confusing when I looked at all these articles because I couldn't really find a consensus. And that's what I was trying right. to look for, right? How come these articles can't find one or two markers consistently that are increase or decrease? Because they're all kind of just fighting with each other. One article will say, hey, our results show an increase while others show decrease, but our methods are different compared to these methods. And there just seems to be a million ways to do something in this specific field and all these results are showing different results. So I think that part of confusion was really what's hitting me when I was researching. Eric, how many of those articles were able to say, we are looking at this genetic variant and this transcriptome mm -hmm. and this process? Oh yeah, like, and some of them even further, like we're looking at that process on this specific portion of the brain. And another article will do the exact same thing, but look at another portion of the brain. Like they look at the thalamus, or one will look at the caudate, and they'd have different results, right? Right, and I, I think, to me, I, I didn't see even that many part, many articles that were able to take the, the allele and correlate it with the transcriptome. Mm -hmm. Because I think that was really what we were hoping for, yeah. was a tight link between allele and transcriptome. And mm -hmm. I think it's more reasonable to say that uh, most of the research we read was trying to ident identify just the transcriptome yeah. 
and, and maybe wasn't able to tie down the alleles yet. Mm-hmm. I think there were a few examples where that was different, right? Mm-hmm. Where where there was um, kind of here's the gene and here's here's the allele, or, or here's the allele rather, and here's mm-hmm. the protein. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, the article by uh, the alpha seven nicotinic receptor. MRA article by Matthew. This was 2007. Now, noreglin, noregulin, uh, I have that typed wrong in my notes. That's been around a long time, right? It's I've been watching OMIM to see how that changes for over a decade now. So OMIM is online Mendelian inheritance in man for those that are listening. And it, it's just kind of tantalizing. Maybe there's something there. Maybe there's not. There's kind of a a long article by Matthew, and at the end of it, I'm not sure that I was convinced of anything. Mm-hmm. But I thought, well, I'll go follow up and read in OMIM to see what it says about uh, mRNA expression in schizophrenia, because noreglin is, like, there's there's a pretty good discussion on that. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing about this in, in OMIM, even though yeah. this article is from 2007. So, so even some of the articles we're looking at I think had some challenges with that. Yeah, there's one article uh, was titled "The Analysis of the Caudate Nucleus Transcriptome in mm-hmm. Individuals with Schizophrenia," and I think they an- identified over 2,000 genes that could be possibly related between patients with schizophrenia versus neurotypical controls. But even in that article, they talked about so many confounding variables, like you know, the, there was no really control for drug medications, right? And having over 2,000 genes that doesn't really help us necessarily because, you know. It, for, for us med students studying, we can't be memorizing 2,000 different genes, right? Was, was that the Miyahara article by any chance? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Because I, so, so there were two articles that I read over and over and over mm-hmm. before I finally gave up. <laughs> One of those was the Miyahara article. So the Miyahara article is, to me, incredibly fascinating. I think... I think I want to go to that after I talk about one of the other articles I really like. So I read about phospholipid breakdown a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, that actually mentioned, I think, MAPT is one of the genes that may be associated with that, whether it is or not. I think this was an older article and maybe not as helpful. I think there's probably pre-2010 research and post-2010 research, yeah. and there's some differences, and we'll get into why that might be a difference. Um, but the... the um, CNR1 gene, which is the cannabinoid receptor 1 gene, which encodes the CB1 gene. This article was by uh, Tao in 2020. I thought this was a phenomenal article. What they had is there was evidence that they that had been kicked out of a study that associated, and I think this was an epidemiological study, that associated the VAL, uh, the COMPT, VAL-158 to methionine uh, mutation, which is, I think, called RS-4680. What's what's it called when it's not a, when it's just that that one change? Um, A SNP, right? I think that's a SNP. Um, So, so they looked at the effect of COMPT, C-O-M-T, on CNR1. And this is what kind of surprised me. So first of all, they had a gene, and they were looking for how it might affect the transcriptome. Mm-hmm. And they were able to find some... They, I think they were just trying to get data. It didn't feel like they necessarily had all of the answers yet, because like when I, when I read this over and over... I, 
I couldn't quite track through it, right? Mm-hmm. But they they were doing this. They were linking a, an epidemiological study that wasn't. I, I don't know that it was a GWA, a GWAS, but they were you know had this characterization. They were following up on it, mm-hmm. and what they talked about were the different ways that the CB1 transcriptome can generate a, uh, I'm sorry, the CNR1 mm-hmm. transcriptome can lead to a receptor. And it was fascinating because they, they talked about the differences in receptors over time, right? It's expressed more in, in fetal development and then has slowly decreased less over time. There's even some information about rescuing from cognitive decline in old age by bumping that that up. Mm-hmm. I mean, just fascinating stuff that that the expression overall, this global expression, is as like a developing child mm-hmm. um, in adolescence and schizophrenia, right? All sorts of interesting stuff about this transcriptome. But they talked about something that adds another layer of complication, right? We've talked about how maybe you have to have a gene and an environment effect to have something happen. Well, you might need two genes and an environment effect because they're talking about how comped might affect C, CNR1 expression, right? Mm-hmm. So you have now one gene regulating another, and that, mm-hmm. that adds just all sorts of difficulty. They called that uh, expression uh, um, EQTL analysis, mm-hmm. right? And I think, uh, if I understand this correctly, and I know you looked this up too, um, the, what I found is this is a method of studying genetic variants that affect the expression of one or more genes. So not just the gene that's a variant. Mm-hmm. This is done by integrating um, what's the loci found in GWAS, the so genome-wide association studies of a disease. It involves the direct association test between markers of genetic variation with gene expression levels. So I think they were trying to correlate COMT expression to the, the transcriptome of, of uh, the CNR1. Yeah. And in any case, like I said, I, I read this over and over and over. <laughs> And, and one of the reasons it caught me is we did a podcast on on the relationship between cannabis smoking and development of schizophrenia. I think the very first study was the Swedish recruits, the military Swedish recruits, and uh, that was way back in the 70s. There, there were a number of concerns that there were um, holes in the study that might make the data difficult to apply broadly. There was even a study, uh, I think it was in 2002, where where Andreasen, Sven Andreasen, who did the orig- who was the lead author on the original study, went back and said, hey, I know this is like 20 years later, but here's some of the questions that were asked, and here's the data, and here's how we answer it, and we think the, the data is even stronger now, and it, it actually looks like it was, right? So we have an epidemiological finding. What we don't have is a genetic finding to go with that yet, but there's another story about uh, cannabis use with this RS, uh, the RS... I could make up a number, I guess, RS4680, that's mm-hmm. the actual number. And now a group that's trying to tie together the neuropathology of that by looking at the transcriptome. Mm-hmm. So, so in my mind, I'm starting to see pieces that may or may not link up, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm kind of hoping that over time we have a more clear link. Uh, maybe the story will be we have these recruits, we have this number that have this gene, 
who smoked marijuana who developed schizophrenia and those who have this gene who smoked marijuana and didn't develop schizophrenia and now what are the factors that may play a role in that? Mm -hmm. What does the, uh, the functional imaging look like? What does the neuronal count look like? Right. What's the downstream effect? What is, the, what is it about this gene that's interrupted that then leads to hallucinations, delusions, or the voices in the, mm -hmm. in the, that people are hearing? So that was what caught me. Mm -hmm. And to kind of piggyback, there's also another article um, looking not only at the specific genes, but gene methylation, and that's a whole other field that you can get into. But basically they found that um, in addition to the genes that they found, which are like GRIA4, ASTN2, and DCDC2, which they found to be associated with schizophrenia, there's actually some alterations in the CPG sites, which are methylation sites of these genes. So that, that kind of goes into the question, hi, hey, is not only the genes, but also the methylation of these genes, the regulation of these genes that could be affected in schizophrenia? So I think what you're saying is good, that we're kind of gathering this information of genetic markers, neuropathology, and kind of trying to associate them together. But, you know, there's so yeah. much, so, so many variables right now, which I think is the primary cause of concern, at least from our, our point of view, yeah. right? The, the brain is big, mm -hmm. yeah. right? I, I think that's a good way of thinking about this. The brain is big in terms of the different areas we're look, that are being looked at by very gifted researchers, mm -hmm. it seems. I, I think following up on that, the reality is, it, it seems like the genome was step one, mm -hmm. the transcriptome feels like step two mm -hmm. in terms of patholog pathology's involvement in that process of sussing out what is schizophrenia yeah. and how might we be able to intervene. Yeah, the, but the issue with step two is that kind of opened up a whole can of worms because there's just so many variables, right? So, right. right. The, the methylation, mm -hmm. a second gene affecting it, mm -hmm. right? And, and environment, how environment affects all of those things. Right. There, there were also some some other interesting things. So you talked about this a little bit, but the difficulty in getting numbers, right? Mm -hmm. um, you talked about a study that was done between 89 and 95, yeah. and there were 100 brains yeah. of patients with schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. That was a huge study. Yeah, at the time the article talked about it being the biggest bank of brains in existence at that time. And you know, when I read that, I was like, oh, that's cool. But see, 100 seems, I don't know, from my perspective, pretty low number, you know, if you think about effect size and stuff and the number needed to make a good study. Because there's 100 patients with schizophrenia and about 150 uh, controls that they had um, and I think the article talked about them like it being so difficult to just get specimens that qualify right and that the hundred that they got was an extraordinary effort through decades of you know basically banking brains in their system right um, and one of the reasons I think I mentioned before was that the difficulty of getting patients with schizophrenia that don't have any other conditions and that maybe you can talk about this how one of the primary difficulties they had is that you can't look at p patients with schizophrenia who've taken dop dopaminergic medications, right? Because that has been known Maybe. To right? Maybe? Maybe, mm -hmm. yeah. I, I think that, so there was an article that suggested that in one part of the brain there might be a change in one, in the expression of one gene depending on that, but then there was another study that looked at mice to say mm -hmm. maybe not after they had looked at human brains. I mean, this is this is research that's difficult to do. And a lot of the researchers, the way I took this mm -hmm. was that with the best tools they have are trying to further the science mm -hmm. the best way they know how. Mm -hmm. But but I think um, I think this gets into, to some extent, the Mia Har article where you're talking yeah. about the antipsychotic 
medication, but let's jump to that in a minute. Mm -hmm. I've already interrupted more than I wanted to. Because oh. you were talking about right how difficult it is to get the samples and, and the confounders. Yeah, and something else they talked about was the kind of stigma of getting autopsies. Because um, performing autopsies isn't necessarily like a mandatory event that happens for most people that, uh, that are deceased. Um, and the only way they, the researchers can do these autopsies is if they have volunteering um, for most of the patients and families to have these brains to be dissected. So a lot of the articles early on were a lot of these researchers advocating that there needs to be more autopsies performed. And I feel like there hasn't been much of a movement for that, you know, trying to convince families and patients to, like, you know, perform or be willing to do autopsies. I'm not sure how familiar with that history, but it seems like back in I'm the day. I'm not very familiar. Yeah, because, yeah, you know, I don't, that isn't really a subject that, it's talked I, about it's, much. it seems like on my residence in one of my rotations one of my attendings mm -hmm. in residency urged everybody to have an autopsy mm -hmm. um, to look at cause of death to to learn more about that process and with the idea that it will help you be a better physician mm -hmm. and maybe further the science as mm -hmm. well um, I in terms of um, I, I want to kind of continue on this line because there's the question about anti-mortem drugs including antipsychotics mm -hmm. and trying to figure this out one of the one of the reasons why this research has been so difficult and perhaps one of the reasons why the the research has been so varied is because of the number of confounders mm -hmm. that come up talk to me about what messes up a good autopsy so in addition to the drugs they talked about, there's a thing called, um, I'm not, I don't remember the, like the particular term, but there's a time between death and the actual autopsy that they looked at. I think it's like time. The PMI? To, PMI, yeah. The post-mortem interval. Yeah. And they said, because as the body dies, a lot of the enzymes and proteins also die. And they talk about this thing called um, RNA quality, I think. Yeah, right? the, RN, the RNA, uh, what is it, RIN? R RNA uh, integrity, integrity number. Yeah, and so that number is basically how good a brain is and how good it will be in determining you know, a diagnostic uh, criteria. So a lot of the effort in current autopsies and post-mortem retention is making sure that the brain has significant you know, um, material in it to be able to not coagulate, not have enzyme degradation, right? Mm -hmm. So interesting thing that when a person has an autopsy, there's a limited time frame where the brain is basically going to be viable unless something is done. All right, so if a patient dies, there has to be like procedures and fermentation that needs to be done to be able to preserve it. Because mm -hmm. you know, most autopsies don't happen that day. Right? The patient needs to be taken into a morgue and then preserved, and then the brain could be examined maybe a couple days or weeks afterwards. Mm -hmm. right? So one of the confounding variables is that it's very difficult to do this. Because right? obviously, yeah. patients with schizophrenia don't die on an appointment. Right? It could be you know, <laughs> any day, and then all of a sudden you have to go over here and preserve the body. And as time goes on, the RNA quality goes down, right? I want to add to that just a little bit. So, so I think the the way I understood this, and I I want to hear you bounce off this because I I don't I don't know that I got this right. My understanding is that some mRNA is durable; mm -hmm. it it sticks around. Some mRNA degrades quite quickly. Some mRNA might be vulnerable to pH changes. We'll talk about that in a minute. Mm -hmm. um, some mRNA may be uh, affected by gender and age, maybe. Mm -hmm. 
And so this RNA, RIN, this RNA integrity number, there, it seemed like the Mia Har article was focused on saying, hey, these are stable and uh, these are unstable. So if you see, I, I, what I wasn't sure about is, excuse me, do you look for the stable reference and compare the degradation to the stable reference? And I think the idea is you should typically see this amount of mRNA of this gene in these Boy, excuse me, in these cells in everybody, right? And if you don't see these levels of mRNA in these cells, then what you end up having is um, broken down mRNA that leads to transcripts of partial proteins. Mm -hmm. And so you don't get a true reading on the protein. And so any proteins that you get, perhaps truncated proteins or differently conformed proteins, then might be, be because of the time that the mRNA, mRNA was degrading, right? And so knowing if your mRNA has degraded or not mm -hmm. is a key part of this MR, or this uh, RIN number, mm -hmm. right? So, so I think they also want to be able to have references so you can look at M mRNA and know that. Mm -hmm. And then there's even like, I think there's even machines now, right? Yeah. That help ensure that, that these uh, genetic tests that that people are looking at, it, it might even give you a reference now. Mm -hmm. The bio, Biotin, is that what it was called? Yeah. The Biotin right. 9000, something like that. It sounded like something out of Phineas and Ferb. Yeah. You know yeah. that reference? I, I know the show. Uh, excellent. Ferb, yeah. I'm happy and so, to further expanding on that, so with, the, with that confounding variable of this RNA quality, one thing when Autogard looked at, is that they try to control that, you know, because it, it's, it's a known thing, not with just with patients with schizophrenia, but all diseases, Everyone, right? right? So this article talked about how even if RNA quality is controlled, you know, assuming that the methods of preserving the bodies are standardized, which mm -hmm. I think they pretty much are. I think they're, yeah. Right? They, it seems like Miyahara is saying, right. we're standard now, and here's what right. we should know mm -hmm. if we look in a certain right. place, right? So this article looked at how even if it's controlled, for some reason, patients with schizophrenia seem to have a lower quality mRNA. Right, and the article talked about there were if our procedures standardized, right, and over a number of articles and a number of autopsies, there shouldn't really be a reason other than schizophrenia that this mRNA quality is de degraded. And then that, but that comes calls into question: Oh, is it the, the disease? Is it dopaminergic medication? You know, is it something else? Yeah. Right, because there's also other confounding variables. They found that schizophrenia patients were older; they had lower pH, right, and particularly important is that they had a longer post-mortem interval between the autopsy and the death. Right? Yeah. I'm not really sure why that is. But. Yeah, there was an interesting article that tackled that. So one of the other confounders is pH, right? Mm -hmm. and, and this opened up a whole unique kind of viewpoint for me because there was an article that made the case that pH is a symptom of schizophrenia, autism spectrum disorder, and mm -hmm. um, was it bipolar disorder? Maybe it wasn't. It was one other condition. So autism, spectrum disorder, and schizophrenia, and one other condition. They said low pH is a marker of the illness, mm -hmm. right? And so it doesn't, apparently it doesn't take much of a pH change to affect the quality of the postmortem evaluation. Mm -hmm. And so um, they made the case, though, that even with the low pH, 
uh, the, 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 I think the article that you're referring to, I, like I said, I had to read that one about seven times. <laughs> I think this was the article where they looked at uh, like 27 patients with schizophrenia, 30 neurotypicals, and then they had a bunch of mice that they did mm-hmm. follow-up study on. And what they said is the mice studies confirmed the human studies, and we think that it's a pH issue in the illness that gives us the changes not the time, mm-hmm. the time doesn't seem to matter as much, mm-hmm. not the, um, maybe not the antipsychotic medications, that doesn't seem to matter as much, but maybe it's all about the pH, mm-hmm. which I think leads into another interesting topic. So in addition to schizophrenia being associated with that pH change, the agonal state. Yeah. Talk to me about the agonal state. Um, so, the agonal state is like what happens to the body. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but like the, what happens to the body just prior to death, you know, there are some um, path like physiological ch- changes that happen to a body before death. Um, I wasn't, we haven't quite studied that too much. We, we, we learned about, you know, what happens to the body quickly after death. You know, like we have like ne- red neuron death and stuff like that. But apparently there's some things such as breathing and respirations and stuff that happen right before you die. But maybe you could further expand on that. It's it's been a while since I've been in the room with patients that are dying. Um, I did that in residency, and uh, maybe that's one of the reasons why I like my job so much is I get to help people be more functional and live more, and I get to avoid a, a lot of the death and dying part of the care. Um, but the agonal breathing are these very deep gaths of breath or irregular and I think there's also some, uh, maybe some arm and leg movements that mm-hmm. might accompany that. But mm-hmm. again, it's been long enough, and maybe I've tried to move that out of my memory. Oh, okay. But I think it's a, it's a, at least the breathing probably is insufficient enough that you're mm-hmm. not blowing off your CO2, mm-hmm. and you get that change pH. Yeah, right. I guess that pH yeah. change. Yeah. And there might be some muscular things that happen at the same time that there's also, increase yeah. lactate. Yeah. That could be one point. Yes. There's also another article I read about the increase in oxidative oxidative stress that happens during patients with schizophrenia and other mental health disorders. So the article talked about how um, there was this marker for, it's called 8-OxoGUO, which is basically like a urine marker that they found to relate to oxidative stress. And they found that patients with schizophrenia and other severe mental illnesses had an increase in this marker. We know that oxidative stress can kind of go in that pathway and change pH and, and alter pH, right? So... On, on that note, you know, like, there could be so many things that affect it. You know, it could be just something biological. It could be this adrenal state. It could be these oxidative markers. So it's really interesting to, to explore that topic. Yeah. And, and I think the, the point is, yeah, well, even smoking can change pH, right? Oh, yeah, it will yeah, also yeah, reduce yeah. pH. So I think the best story that I was able to put together is that uh, pH is different in our patients with mm-hmm. schizophrenia than mm-hmm. it is in other patients, that the change in pH seems to have been a significant challenge to overcome to be able to have better data from the studies. Mm -hmm. And that as um, pathologists have have had a greater understanding of that pH, it seems like they've developed tools to try and know whether they're getting a good sample or not Mm -hmm. that they can reliably kind of pass along and say, hey, we think this is happening in this part of the brain. what is a micro, what is microarray testing and how did this help us identify candidate genes? I saw that line in one of the articles and then I was so worn out I went and took a nap. I, I had like totally worn out my brain reading these articles. Uh, 
I wasn't too familiar about the topic, but it's basically like um, a more modern method of testing for um, genetic abnormalities. I think that's primary lose. We used, I read maybe in my board material that's used to like diagnose chromosomal abnormalities and stuff like that. So I was under the impression that this replaced the like the karyotyping of yeah, chromosomes, yeah. right? Yeah. What I what I couldn't figure out is if essentially they ran every protein on a plate that they got in a sample or I, I, I couldn't tell what it was. And I think this is the Biotin 1000 analyzer as well, if I have the right name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And apparently it's the standard of care, yeah. right? Oh, um, so the, the microarray, if, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's like there's a normal, you get the sample and then there's a expected sample and just split it over it just to find if there's any missing pieces mm. in the gene. Yeah, oh, okay, so That's that, that would is. make some sort of, because I think we looked at some of those, it had the the peaks, right? Is yeah, that how it looks? So you just want to look for the differences. And so you'd see the differences in the peaks based mm -hmm. on that, because I think they did that with the uh, one of the genes with uh, with the RS4860, 4680. Um, one other, there were a couple other questions that I have. Um, I think currently transcription irregularities are the staple of neuropathology. I would, I would agree, yeah. Okay. So I got that much out of the reading. Yeah. <laughs> Will there be a time when that isn't the staple, when that's kind of nailed down? And if there will be a time when that's the case, do you have any idea what will be next? Hmm. It's kind of hard to predict the future, right? <laughs> if you asked doctors, researchers, like just 50 years ago, they wouldn't have thought any of this was possible. Yeah. I mean, I, the only thing I can maybe think about is like looking further than the DNA. I don't know, like our imaging technologies these days are pretty good, you know, and maybe looking at the shape of the, the genome, not just these markers, you know, but that kind of dives more into like biochemistry or stuff like that. You know, maybe you could like model genetic markers and see how they differ, and, you know, stuff like that. Are, are you talking about the proteonomics? Yeah. So, yeah. so the proteome is maybe after the tra transcriptome. Mm -hmm. um, I, there was an article that talked about that, the, the marijuana article, the cannabis article, and the, the CNR1 article um, talked about the differences in the, in the functionally equivalent and maybe slightly differently transcribed mm -hmm. uh, versions of CNR1. And I was fascinated by that. I've always, I think, been incredibly fascinated by the idea that communication in the brain, other than some electrical signals, uh, seems to be largely done by shape. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right? Shape is is our method of communication, communicating. Mm -hmm. And when we can get the right shapes together, then things work. And when we don't have the right shapes together, things don't work. Right? Yeah. That's the receptor uh, antagonist or agonist kind of theory of, mm -hmm. of most of our medications. Mm -hmm. And maybe the vast majority of our treatments that are by physicians. So, so I'm. I think you're right. I think that's the proteome is probably next, mm -hmm. and it comes down to the yeah. size and shape of the molecules. But I feel like a lot of the recurrent researchers are doing a pretty good job with what we have right now. You know, um, I'm not sure how long, how much longer it's going to take, but I can imagine you know, within the next like 30, 40 years, there could be more progress on this current research. What we have for schizophrenia, right? I remember reading. 
uh, around the year 2000, one of the articles, or a book, that mm-hmm. talked about the development of Riflips. Mm-hmm. I don't even hear about that anymore, right? Yeah. Those were genetic markers to help us try and identify where genes were. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's uh, that was earth-shattering at the time, yeah. and uh, I don't know that it is all that important. I think uh, Mario Capecchi, Dr. Capecchi, with his knockout mice mm-hmm. was pretty valuable, but I think uh, we now have the, uh, oh, what's the, Cass, not Comcast, Cass something. Uh, CRISPR, yeah. yeah. Cass CRISPR, right? CRISPR. Yeah, Cass CRISPR, and I think that might even be taking us further along the pathway of understanding genetics. Mm-hmm. And these things to me are um, dramatic changes. In high school, I learned about Watson and Crick. Crick? <laughs> really? Watson and Crick developing a model for doing, I think it was x-ray crystallography on DNA mm-hmm. to understand the structure. Mm-hmm. I remember in college reading about Okazaki fragments, yeah. and mm-hmm. and those were like promoter regions, right? But we didn't understand uh, methylation at that point mm-hmm. when I was in college, so that would have been about 30 years ago. And so I, 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 I think it could be less. There's more understanding of those now, I think. Oh, yeah, I think there's a... Yeah, one of the interesting things when doing this uh, podcast research was just seeing the development of science over time. You know, you look at the... the, the, We talked about the graveyard pathology. That was quoted, like, in the 1900s, right? Like, Mm -hmm. back when, you know, they were still doing lobotomies and stuff, right? Uh So just seeing the progress you've made is pretty astounding, you know? And uh, taking a step back, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of... If you look at the current research, it seems like, you know, kind of just throwing stuff at the wall and trying to see what sticks in terms of genetics, you know. And I, I kind of, like, kind of got down, like, oh, there's not really any hope. <laughs> it seems like the tunnel is just getting longer and longer. You can see the light, but it's just getting longer. So I was kind of thinking about, like, what other conditions, modern conditions that we learn about that kind of went through this process. And uh, looking into the research for breast cancer, which started in, like, the early 1930s, 1940s. And it was only recently, like, in, like, I think... BRCA1, BRCA2 was discovered in 1994, 1995. So that was almost like a 50-year uh, research that they did. And looking into it, they kind of in a similar situation that we are now with schizophrenia where they were, had so many genetic markers, so many confounding variables that they weren't sure if they were going in the right direction for decades. And it was only through persistence and stuff that they were finally able to to point out to like BRCA1, BRCA2. And now we have phenomenal treatment for breast cancer. And if someone has a family history, they can go get a genetic test and then we can treat them prophylactically. You know, we can take the breast out or the ovaries out to decrease their risk for uh, future breast cancer. So I think we're in that current stage with schizophrenia and these genetic markers where we're kind of in the the wild west, you know, kind of looking at what's possible and what we have, but hopefully one day, you know, we can have these like one or two genetic markers and maybe you can sign a lot of Maybe one day, if you have a family history of schizophrenia, you can get a genetic test. It'll show a positive sign and you can treat you could do something right? prophylactically. prophylactically. I don't know yeah. what that would look like. Right? <laughs> no, it's, it's interesting because you, you mentioned that, and even uh, so at about that time, just after they had discovered BRCA1, mm-hmm. right, there were questions about do you test, what are the ethics of that, right. what are the implications, yeah. and I was involved in a study. Uh, BRCA1 was identified in my family mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they roped us into a study uh, through the University of Utah where they would ask us, knowing this or knowing that you're negative, how are you living your life? Right. How do the stressors affect you? I thought there were challenges with the study, but I thought it was an interesting uh, mm-hmm. approach to how do we transition to a brave new world where we understand <laughs> our genetics, right? Uh-huh. And and I, th- I remember being 
part of that study, mm-hmm. and I can imagine mm-hmm. being part of a study looking at, or, or my patients being part of a study mm-hmm. looking at the effects of having their children be able to test and see if they're at risk for maybe the allele or mm-hmm. the SNP that may be a factor in development of schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And I think we're probably, we, we could be generations away from understanding right. all of the uh, mm-hmm. the nuances because of the interplay between the genes. I mm-hmm. think we've talked about, um, what is it, genetic loading scores. There's some sort of score. There are a couple of different people that are doing that, mm-hmm. uh, different specialties where they're trying to look at all of the genes that somebody carries and make decisions about yeah. what their risk is for development of a specific condition without understanding the pathological correlates yet, mm-hmm. I think. And so yeah. um, I think we're probably a ways from understanding all of the interplay, like the COM, uh, the COMT mm-hmm. gene uh, interaction with maybe the CRN1, CNR1 gene yeah, for cannabinoid receptors. So. Yeah. Very interesting stuff. Did you did you read about quaking proteins? Because I thought that might be something that was artifactual, in um, as one of the confounding factors as well. Uh, I think I just read a little bit that they're like functions of RNA metabolism or something like that. I okay. Would've... All right. Yeah. So so maybe just a little bit more about the uh, mRNA. So initially, the test that they did was they would look at two uh, at ribosomes. They'd look at the ratio of the 68, uh, 28 in the 18S bands, uh-huh. and a 2 to 1 ratio of those two bands suggested a stable, a good uh, RIN. Miyahari says, no, that's bunk, <laughs> and he's provided, or he or she has provided better data for that, right? Uh-huh. And so it's, it's, again, some ratios that you look at to see if you have too much degradation of the mRNA. Yeah. Um, and I think, and quaking proteins are apparently part of that. Then. Yeah. Okay. Um, I really liked this topic, yeah. and it was a beast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What did you learn that pre that excites you for the future, that gets you more excited about going into pathology? I think one thing I learned was that it's such an expansive field. You know, I think before I thought pathology and neuropathology was just focusing on the brain, you know, just doing gross autopsies, you know, stuff you see on TV. Um, but... It seems like the science is pretty much limitless. There's so many different things you can go. You can go genetics, you can go protein, mRNA, you can, you know, go uh, do imaging, right? So it was, I was happy to see that we have so many options now. Um, if you ask pathologists maybe 100 years ago, maybe all they had was gross specimen um, autopsies, but I'm excited to see like what further advancements we can have. You know, maybe 30 or 40 years from now, we can have new imaging technology or new staining stuff that we can use to better diagnose patients. Right, so it doesn't seem like a static field. It seems like a field that's really open to a lot of new change. You know, we we have things with like AI now and stuff like that. So I can't imagine what kind of possibilities we'll have in, on this field in the future. So kind it's of, pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It gives me hope. You, I, I thought I heard you say one time that you were thinking about neuropathology, not just pathology, but mm-hmm. I shouldn't say just pathology. Right, that's a pretty smart crowd. Um, but neuropathology. Did I hear that right, or did I imagine that? Um, kind of interesting going to forensics, which you know has a lot of like That's neuropathology right. related stuff in, in it. You know, I I think looking at the brain might be something I'm kind of more passionate about after looking at all these articles and doing this research. So that's right, because you said that during the. Uh, yeah. it, it was a busy week. Yeah, yeah. I, I had a busy week. <laughs> Uh, that's right, because you mentioned that during the psychological autopsy mm-hmm. yeah. uh, podcast, which I thought was very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, 
what else do you want to talk about that you haven't had a chance to talk about that might be worth mentioning? Um, no, I think we basically pretty much covered everything. You know, it's a it was a really uh, complicated topic, and you know, I'm sorry for our listeners that are kind of like <laughs> may have glazed eyes, but um, I know. actually think we would have glazed eyes had we gone into the details of each oh, yeah. study, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I think there are a handful of take-home points, right? You grind up certain parts of the brain and look for the transcriptome now. Mm-hmm. That is the the home of neuropathology at the moment, or mm-hmm. a big part of the house of neuropathology. Um, that there are a number of ways that schizophrenia can mess up the sample. I think that was enlightening to me. And, and that we still are having a tough time tying the specific pieces of here's the genome-wide association study allele that's been identified, here's the uh, pathological correlate of a changed protein from, mm-hmm. the, from the standard protein, right? And I think those mysteries are getting closer to being solved, and I think that's the, that's, I mean, yeah, we didn't glaze people's eyes over talking about all of the details of each study. Oh yeah, of all forty. And you know, I gotta, I gotta respect these researchers because you know, I, I'm not, I'm, you know, thank God doctors don't really, and we're not research focused, we're cl- clinicians, so I can't even begin to imagine how these researchers are going to tackle this problem. You know, it seems like just creating a study that has all these confounding variables and makes progress. You know, I, I, I've gained a lot of respect for researchers on this topic. That is a great point. Yeah, as as I was reading the articles and looking at the challenges, despite the the tenacity, right, despite this being the graveyard of neuropathologists, not just the 1900s, like 1995, 2001, those kinds of statements were being made, right? Even despite that, people didn't give up. They kept saying, we know there's something different here. We just don't know how to find it yet. Mm -hmm. We don't have the tools to see it. And that tenacity is really impressive. Yeah. Yeah, what a great point. Other points that you would add? Um, I think just encourage people to be interested in the field because, you know, a lot of these articles talked about how there was some dwindling interest in schizophrenia. You know, after that quote came out, a lot of people just gave up. But I think there's some more interest now in the field of schizophrenia and research. So I think people need to be advocates for um, these patients because it's the interest that drives the research. Right. If yeah. no one's interested in schizophrenia, no one's going to do research on it. So I think people need to be aware of the condition and just advocate uh, for just more awareness and more research. So I like that. Yeah. I'm a fan of that take home. Yeah. Uh, Camille, any any comments? Any take home that you would add? Um, yeah, I'm I'm quite excited about the prospects that's going to come out of this, considering that um, we look at mental health differently from what we look at the physical health, and then we're able to figure out the genetics markers for medical condi- regular medical conditions and um, been able to find genetic markers for mental illness and then been able to find prophylactic care or treatment for it. I mean, it's it's going to go like a really long way. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting and it would help us with managing it and just helping everybody else and the patients as well and the family as well. And I'm hoping one day you'll have a student with, with a podcast topic of, of prophylactic treatment for schizophrenia <laughs> and talk about the current research and all I'm hoping that happens one day. And with really with CAS CRISPR. Yeah. And or CRISPR do you, CAS. Do you think there really could be any um, prophylactic treatment on, symptomatically? I mean, if like, there's a family issue of it and like, oh, that's mm-hmm. tr- we can. I don't know if that's a possibility right. even at all. A, that'd be pretty cool, wouldn't right. it? Yeah, would it? Would. Okay. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool to be able to or even to have better treatments, I think one of the articles that caught my attention a little bit, making this podcast even longer. Yeah, sorry. 
we're at the 55 minute mark already, isn't that amazing? Um, the acetylcholine articles, right? There were a handful of those. And we have a new treatment that looks like it's going to make it into the mainstream in the near future. And that's the uh, xanomelene or xanomelene, depending on who you hear say it. Um, it. It looks like it could be potentially life-changing for people that haven't that have a type of schizophrenia that maybe doesn't respond to the traditional dopamine uh, antagonists. And I think even um, one of the articles you and I talked about a little bit was the, uh, the article that uh, talked about there's two types of schizophrenia. There's the inflammatory frontal yeah. lobe schizophrenia, and then there's everything else. And we know that because when we look at people who have genes for inflammation and have schizophrenia, they have more inflammation than other mm -hmm. patients with schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that's, it feels like that's a little circular. Right. Um, but I think that's the start of, okay, w where does the inflammation affect the brain? What is it in the brain? Is it a pH issue with inflammation? Is it something else, right? Is it uh, directly inhibiting through maybe some sort of shape interaction, one of the receptors or one of the activities of the molecules? So. Mm -hmm. I'm excited to see all of those things yeah. play yeah. out. Eric, you did an amazing job. Um, I think this was a great topic. This phenomenally expanded my understanding of, uh, I, let me say it differently. I knew that I didn't, I wasn't tracking well the genetic changes mm -hmm. or the, the risk alleles, I think is how one of the articles talked about that. Um, I wasn't tracking why it had been so difficult to take those risk alleles to um, some sort of protein process and a treatment, right? I think I have a better understanding of that now, and that helps me as I read the literature. I think this also helped me better understand when I'm reading articles, okay, I'm looking for how they did what, how they did their RIN, right? Mm -hmm. When was the article done? Before 20, maybe 2018, mm -hmm. I'll have more questions about the process. Um, It'll help me understand why people are going for such small portions of the brain, right? We are only going for the left caudate lobe mm -hmm. when we're looking at this. Well, it's possible that that gene expression is in other places, mm -hmm. but let's start off smaller, find those differences in the smaller regions, mm -hmm. right? Have statistical significance that lets us know we're on the right track as mm -hmm. opposed to jumble, right? right. Yeah, I agree. Like, um, starting with this research, I was kind of wondering why they're heading in this direction, but hopefully this podcast for people listening can kind of exp give a good remind or a kind of a reasoning behind these researchers. Because I think they're going down the right path. I think this is probably the way I would do it if I was researching, just being very specific and going down this route. So I'm yeah. going to have to say I wouldn't go down this pathway because I wouldn't have been smart enough to figure uh. it out. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 there's some really clever ways that the articles were yeah. set up to find some things that I, I wouldn't have been able to figure out. Uh, thank you very much for the great podcast. Camille, we'll see you back in a couple of hours for a podcast on post-cardiac surgery delirium, I believe. Yeah, that, that's a good way to go about it because it was supposed to be a post-operative delirium, but most of the patients are cardiac patients. So. Well, I think we tightened it down because we'd done a couple on delirium and this gave us a chance to talk about time on the pump, right? Oh, that's true. That's and, true. and the things I had wrong about that before we started reading the articles. Well, surprise, surprise. Oh, well, don't be too shocked. <laughs> Eric, again, thank you. On that note, gentlemen, team out. Team, team out. out.